time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. get a call on this it's 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 silence but it's gonna buzz we just kind of we whatever. don't care because we whatever we've got you can the... even take the damn call yo yo hi <laughs> how you doing wait is this a prank call oh it is yo yo okay it reminds me of when i got a call from him one time in, in, no in, way for real yeah in my uh kitchen at the house that daryl lived in then i lived in it afterwards Oh my God! What did he say? Hello, Mark. It's Joey Ma. And, and I said, I said, yeah, right, Joey. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure it is, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> He's a hell of a guy. He's the best. Nice. Was he calling to see if you could sub for a gig or something? No, sadly, no. <laughs> no, he called to say he was coming into town and he wanted to meet me. No way. And, and so I went to his hotel in San Francisco. And I kept getting these messages. Mr. Ma is 10 minutes away. Oh, my goodness. Mr. Ma is turning the corner. <laughs> Mr. Ma is here. And then when I see him, he goes, Hi, hey, Mark. And he grabs my cello, bounds up the stairs or the elevator. I just think there were stairs. And, and sure, Yo-Yo Ma, carry my cello. That's great. Wow. And he was super. I played his Strad. I think it's the one that Jacqueline... Ah, Jacqueline Dupre had. I, I'm not sure what, what what instrument he's playing now. He has a Grafola, I think. But 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 anyway, I played his, you know, and I played Julio for him. And oh wow, it's, it's a great memory. And he sent a fax to um, when Turtle Island played the Carnegie Hall recital hall, Wild Hall. At least yep. that's what it was then. Yep. He sent he sent a letter or a little. It wasn't really. It wasn't a telegram. It wasn't a fax. But it was <laughs> right. a. A letter. Wow. Congratulations on your New York Carnegie Hall debut. I can't remember what it said. I have it somewhere. You know, damn it. He, he is as nice as everyone says he is. That's, I, I met him one time, and that was my... He is absolutely as nice as all the legends will lead you to believe. I, I, I seriously think about how, how, how does he do it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and can I do the same, you know? Yep, exactly. Well, this is a perfect, actually, this is a perfect way to intro the show because, <laughs> here, I'm just going to do go into my thing here, effortlessly lead right into the intro by saying, hey, it's Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove, the Future of Strings podcast, and... You know, we were just talking, as you heard, about Yo-Yo Ma coming to visit my guest today, Mark Summer. And when they write the history of 
contemporary string playing in the 20th century, and they talk about the cello part of it, there's going to be one name that is going to come up a lot, and that is my guest today, Mr. Mark Summer, an original member of the Turtle Island String Quartet, my bandmate for years, and very good friend. Man, welcome. Thank you, my son. Thank you for buttering me up and welcoming me so nicely. I haven't even started with your bio yet, so. Oh, no, start away. (laughs) So, for the one or two people who may not be familiar with Mark Summer, and I'll give you a little background on this guy, okay? First of all, co-founder of the two-time Grammy-winning Turtle Island String Quartet, the original cellist, was there for over 30 years, I believe. Correct? Correct. Like I like to say 30 fun-filled years. <laughs> a graduate of the Cleveland Institute of Music and a member of the Winnipeg Symphony from 81 to 84, distinguished in your the earlier part of your career. Um, and you had this trio with Paquito de Rivera. Uh that actually yeah. was nominated for a Grammy in 2005, which is super cool. I had a really tough spot to, to deal with because Turtle Island was nominated for the first Grammy for uh, 4 Plus 4 with the Ying Quartet. Right. And that was the same year that Paquito's trio, the chamber jazz trio, was nominated for a Grammy. And he wasn't there. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting next to my band members and the Yings are there. And and we're waiting to hear who won. And, you know, I didn't know it would be either one of them. But right. all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking, what's that going to be like yeah. for the Turtles if, if <laughs> yeah. Paquito's recording wins? Fortunately, that was not the case. <laughs> and and so they announced that we won. And and David Balakrishnan, he jumps up in the air. <laughs> it's, a, it's a moment to savor. I'm sure, man. Speaking of David Balakrishnan... You premiered his cello concerto, Force of Nature. Written for me, apparently. Which was, yes, written for you. You know, many people, I think, will know you from your hit single, Julio, which (laughs) (laughs) dominated the cello airwaves for years. (laughs) It's the little piece that keeps on giving. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's, sales are in the, well, it's it's done well, actually. Yeah, it's actually done really well. And it actually was used on NBC's Parenthood and on two different episodes, if I'm not mistaken. You've done your homework, I my friend. I did a little bit of research, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to trust everything to memory at this point. <laughs> That's great. And an Apple Watch commercial. Uh, oh, no way. For real? Yeah, but it wasn't me playing. It was really funny. Oh, my gosh. They, they, they wanted to get this, this young 
cellist who was quite fine, but but he didn't use a whole lot of the piece anyway. Yeah. But yeah, it's been it's been it's done me well. It's done me proud. Well, it's and it's it's really amazing how uh, you know of all the contemporary cellists that are out there, and there are a few, you know, who are who have been following in your footsteps. Um, you are still the name that everybody talks about when it comes to cello. It's you know because you started it when when Turtle Island started in '85, I believe. Right, end of '85. Um, yeah, there was just nobody doing what you were doing, uh, and nobody knew how to do it. And it took years; it took like twenty years for people to start catching up to uh, the groundbreaking work that that you did with Turtle Island. You know, with violin players, there, you know, there were some, you know, jazz players earlier. You know, um, in the twentieth century, all kinds of. Guys, you know, kind of doing that stuff and electric guys like Jean-Luc. Um, but there was really nobody in the cello world, uh, not just playing improvising melodically, but doing the kind of rhythmic, supportive kind of work that you were doing. And, and so you just totally broke ground uh, on the instrument. And let's just get into the right into the deep end uh, and get philosophical right off the get go. And and ask you why music altogether? And what was it that, that drew you into music when you were younger? And what, what, what sparked the fire that ended up, uh, you know, turning into a flame of Turtle Island? <laughs> God, you're good at this. Um, <laughs> well, I started playing piano when I was seven. I took lessons for two years. And I had a, a heck of a time reading piano music because of the two clefs. It's just, you know, yeah. my brain only wants to deal with one. And so I started kind of making up what I thought the piece should be or might be. And my teacher was not amused, of course. <laughs> Mrs. Shanahan, you know, <laughs> you didn't practice again. Don't she make up your own me. notes. You play the ones on the page. She fired me. <laughs> it's really funny. But, but, um... Oh, gosh, you know, I was watching the Ed Sullivan show and the, the Beatles were on and yep. actually the Rolling Stones were on. And uh, um, I, 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 I wish there was a program like that now. Yeah. You know, you just got to hear a variety of things that really inspired me as a, as a, as a child. So I, so I took piano lessons and then I took um, about four guitar lessons. And that's when I really started listening to uh, AM radio, 93 KHJ, boss, hey, good morning, campers, where this is the real Don Steele. So, 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 um, so, so I started playing guitar. About what age uh, are we talking about? Oh, uh, yeah, I started seven, nine, I was playing guitar in nine and a half, November, 1970, if we recall it correctly. Um, I started taking cello lessons, and that's when things get interesting, weird, difficult, exciting, um, a whole range of emotions that I have about it. Um, it was not uh -huh. easy. My father, my father took me to a music store, and he pointed to an instrument on the top shelf. He says, do you know what that is? And I said, I think so, but I really don't know that I did. And he says, it's a cello, and I want you to play it. And that was a difficult moment. 
that I'm still digesting at the age of 64. <laughs> believe it or not, I, I kid you not. Um, Why was it difficult? Well, I'm not sure I knew what it was. My dad wanted me to do it. I wanted to please my father. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the teachers that I had were interesting, won't yeah. be charitable. I mean, great cellist. <laughs> Um, my, my, my first teacher was in the L.A. Philharmonic, and that made me feel really important. I have a teacher in the L.A. Phil We're getting instruments from Hans Weishauer, you know, in L.A., the big yeah. violin shop yeah. and cello shop, of course. Um, and uh, what did you ask me? No. Uh, why music? And well, you know, I mean, in a philosophical sense, music feeds your soul for sure. It feeds mine. Yeah. Um, I loved I love playing piano. P- piano still, cello might be my favorite sounding instrument, but the piano is what I use to be creative with in terms of composing. And, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's nice to have. It's challenging to write music on a string instrument. Yes, you know, it's it's. I, I pretty much written every, everything that I've written has started on piano. Julio started, you know, on piano, and it sounds it sounds really different, and and it has a very different feel. The other day I was playing in Sonata on the on the, on oh, the wow. piano because I wrote it on the piano, of course. So interesting. You played that tune. Yes, I have many times, many times. That's so cool. That's so cool. And and it, it does speak to one of the central issues that I talk about on this show, on this podcast, and in every lesson that I teach, which is um, playing a stringed instrument chordally as a chordal instrument like guitar or piano those are our two main chordal instruments where you can plunk down a bunch of notes at the same time stringed instruments generally designed to be melodic instruments however i think one of the great uh, innovations that you brought to the cello world was treating it like a guitar often you know and playing it in such a way that you could back up a string quartet, for instance, um, you know, uh, I mean, obviously you were doing stuff like uh, walking bass and being the bass player, but I always felt that, you know, your rhythm, I mean, the first time that I sat down with you guys, there was such a uh, clear and easy to follow, easy to play with a rhythmic structure that was there, you know, and it wasn't just somebody chopping. It was the way you were pitzing, slapping, bowing. It was just um, very organic and sounded like I was playing with a guitar player, you know, just that complete backup instrument sensation that you get from a chordal instrument like guitar or piano. So I wonder if you could speak to that and, and you know, whether it was the guitar playing that brought you to that or, you know, how you kind of developed that. Well, guitar playing did bring me to that. I did a lot of strumming guitar. I'm, not, I'm certainly not a virtuoso guitar player playing, playing uh, lines. I used to, I used to improvise as a kid. I was in a rock band. I played guitar and, 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 I wasn't the guitarist, but I played a lot of guitar. Um, the The main thing that would that happened in Turtle Island is you get parts given to you, and you start playing them, and it's like, how can I make this really rock? How can I make it groove? How can I keep it together? Um, and I know you're like this. I will do anything 
I will stand on my head to make the groove work, you know, because right. without it, it sucks. Right. And, um, and, <laughs> and not everybody has the same strengths. And if you're playing a support instrument anyway, you know, the cello lends itself, it's on the bottom and, and in, right. in all ways, it, 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 it helps make everybody sound good. Um, I had, in a lot of ways, I had the same job that the, uh, the disgruntled bass player in a, in a jazz <laughs> quartet has. Not so disgruntled, you know, playing all the time, working, 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 working <laughs> on, a, on a big instrument. And the cello's big, you know, cello's got a fair amount of real estate to deal with. Yeah. But, but um, in terms of chordal, the chordal aspects of the instrument, um, that definitely came from guitar for me. And, and, I, and I still look for things um, that I would do on guitar, like, like trying to play um, Blackbird by Paul McCartney and the yep. Beatles, you know. Yep. Um, and and, and I, I got to say, there, there's, it's been expanded upon since, since I did all of these things with Turtle Island and my other playing um, to a, an incredible degree. Yeah. So it's, it's taking parts, expanding upon them, making things prove convincingly without hurting oneself. <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I mean. I, yes. Just, yes. Well, wait, which, no, you don't. You uh, play on a small little axe. <laughs> you know, I've done enough chopping. You know, you chop long enough, you'll, you'll know what it means to, uh, yeah, to support people to the yeah. point of pain. You were great at that. And, and Daryl Anger, of course, well, with yeah. taking what Richard Green had done and, yeah. and doing incredible developments with it. And so Daryl and I, you know, in the early days, you know, he'd come in and he'd play the chop right in my ear. <laughs> and we would really get something happening for sure. And then, and then all the other turtles, of course, learned how to chop and all, yeah. had, all did that. But nobody did it like Daryl. Nope. And Daryl and I me. were, yeah. yeah, of course, you know, he taught you well, my son. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask you do do you did you resent having to always be the bass player like you got into cello because it's this beautiful melodic instrument and then you know you end up having to be the greatest rhythm cello player in the world because you're the only one with low strings fair enough um <laughs> did I resent it several years of psychotherapy <laughs> later no I I mean uh, it was very fulfilling to, to help make the groove work. Um, I did think about whether I had been given enough melodic room, you know, to, to, <laughs> to express sure. myself. Um, it's interesting because, because I never felt satisfied with my, uh, my arco playing. That's still something, interesting. you know, that I'm always thinking about. It, it's so much easier for me to play pizzicato things on the cello than to play arco playing. Huh. Um, challenging enough to play classical music but to then get the stylistic aspect of you know improvised music right the usual the different genres that you're playing 
It's, yeah. it's complicated. I mean, one of the things that I hear a fair amount is people playing hip tunes, really great rhythm, and then when and cellists go to solo and or play melodic lines, all of a sudden they sound like they're Cleveland Institute of Music exactly. graduates, which is a compliment in the sense they can play really well, but, but it doesn't sound like jazz or right. certainly... I'm trying to think which is the most complicated to, to actually sound um, convincing. Would it be jazz, rock? I mean, for you, I believe you would in a second go, no, it's not, it's not quite right. Now, an interesting situation happened. Um, so you mentioned Julio. My, I think my favorite thing that I've done has been with David Ying playing Julio as a duo. Huh. And... Um, he had never played that kind of music before, whatever we want to call it, Mark Summer music, but all the influences from Bach to the Beatles and, and right. all sorts of things in between. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had his own hit off of it. And so, so when my kid, Michael, who's a, an amazing uh, tenor saxophone player, yeah. and when he heard it, he goes, no, Dad, it's all wrong. <laughs> and, and David Ying is a phenomenal cellist. He's one of my favorite cellists. Um, I said, no, it's exactly what I wanted. He played like David, but he was influenced by what I did. And, and the two of us came closer to each other. And, and it really sonically sounds great because he sounds he's playing yeah. on a Ruggieri, yeah, yeah. you know. And uh, so that's one of the things I'm most proud of, actually, is getting a great classical cellist to come towards me, but still keep his character of his playing, you know. Interesting. Interesting. That's the the giveaway. You know? The vibrato and the bow, where where they're playing in the bow. I mean, yeah. cellists want to make a big sound yes. and play at the frog and play with the whole bow, and yes. you know, and then all of a sudden it's almost like you've got a three quarter size bow to play with. You know, they're like, "What do you mean? Why am I playing up here?" Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. You know, I always think of vibrato as being like your accent. Like, you know, if you're from New York or you're from London or whatever, you have a different accent. And if you're a classical player or if you're a bluegrass player, your vibrato will have that accent. And because it's this sort of muscle memory, uh, just as, you know, our vocal accents are, uh, it's really hard for us to to fool people or to break that, you know, to, to be able to speak without an accent or speak with a different accent, different dialect. Um, it's so true, Tracy. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, it really does take a a, a, a very concerted effort uh, on the player to try to forget everything that they've learned in classical music. Was, I, I, I love to tell people it took me years to forget everything that I learned at Juilliard. Uh, and uh, But, you know... I'm glad I, I worked on it so hard. <laughs> I believe that you still draw upon some of those great teachings from your 
you know? Well, that's the kind of the, the interesting thing. And I guess that's part of our sort of all of our jobs as musicians, because we're sort of sponges. We pick up all these different influences. And then at some point we start to distill them and figure out, OK, what do we want to keep and what do we not want to keep? You know, do I want to sound like Stefan Grappelli or do I want to sound like uh, Miles Davis or, you know, who are my influences? Who is it that that speaks to me and to and to be more than just an accumulation of all of the sounds that have entered my ears and to start making personal choices about what is my voice on the instrument going to be? Uh, and I know you were you have influences. I know the Beatles were a big influence for you. I think Leo Kotke was also, uh, if I'm not mistaken, an influence. Uh, a huge also, influence. A yeah. huge influence for, for what you were talking about related to guitar playing and chords and, and all of that. Right, finger picking. And the, and the Beatles, the Beatles more like uh, composition, how they took simple chord progressions and, and figured out how to make them quite complex. Um, so not so much the the playing influenced me, but but right. when you mentioned uh, Stefan Grappelli and and then Joe Venuti, that's how I got into uh, playing jazz. Was listening to those guys and Oscar Pettiford and for bass and. Mm -hmm. uh, but I I hear what you're saying. I mean, to me, you just want to expand your palate. I'll tell you one thing. When when I started, when I'll teach somebody who says they want to play jazz, for instance. I'll go, well, what, are you listening to jazz? What do you listen to? A lot of times it, they don't, yeah. they're not. Right. And then it's like, how, how on earth would yeah. someone be, be able to sound convincing as a jazz player or, or a rock player or any or, or bluegrass player? I mean, do you listen to bluegrass? You sure as hell better if you want to play it. Yeah, yeah because it's like a, like a foreign language. And if you're trying to learn how to speak in French, you know, the first thing you should do is listen to French speakers. C'est vrai, mon ami. Oui. Très <laughs> bien. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, you know, uh, it sometimes comes up, you know, we're talking about the idea of of developing your own voice as a player. Um, students, you know, will will sometimes struggle with, with that. Like, what's the real... What's my real voice? I you know, I just have to interject. I heard a rumor that you once took your violin to Joe Grubach, who one of the two people that made my cello, Joe and his wife Seagren. Yes. And you asked him to, you asked him to um, give you an adjustment that would sound like Miles Davis's muted, muted trumpet. So yes. some people will go to extraordinary lengths to get that sound that they want. I spent two hours with Joe. At that time, it was only 150 bucks an hour, I think. I don't, God, I don't, hate to even think. And that was back in the 90s. I hate to think what their hourly rate is now. But I was like, man, can you just make it so that when I get, when you know, when he gets to that note, and he goes, boom, 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 wah. And it does that overblow thing that just rips your heart out right and you mean you mean his his first soul part of the solo in uh so what yeah. all over yeah. that record and i think the track i was listening to was blue and green um, oh oh yeah well that, yeah i was just listening to that recording yeah. that that is that inspired me so much honestly if i were to say what's one recording that a beginning jazz player on string instruments want, would listen to, it would be that. Yep. And, and I just had the, the extraordinary 
time, an extraordinary time listening to uh, um, Paul Chambers. I never heard, hmm. I never heard what he did on on so what. Yeah. In, that, in the way that I did the other way, he was he was doing uh, uh, sex tuplets. You know, it's soft. Yep. It's subtle, partially because how they recorded the bass and the they when we record me playing cello in Turtle Island. Yeah, you know, I had the amp in the studio, especially at the end, and I tried to get as I want. I don't want to say loud, but I wanted to get it to sound as much like a bass as I could as I could get it to sound. Yeah. And so, so that's part of what we talk about is finding our voice is getting something, getting a certain quality of sound pressure because our instruments don't naturally do that. And, and you can't just play them louder. You've got to have a concept yes. of, of, of what's going what's gonna to give you the sound that you want. And the vibrato is something that it kind of helps you sound louder and full and, and compete with an orchestra. So we're dealing with uh, sound systems. You know, I'm dealing with an amp, a sound system in the hall. You've got effects. It's a whole mishigas to get it all <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah. But when well, it does, it's phenomenal and, and uh, makes life worth living. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, <laughs> when they hear, um, hear what you're doing, especially when you're doing like walking uh, bass lines, and um, people, their instinct is to think, oh, well, you're using an octave divider. You're putting it down mm -hmm. an octave. But of course, you're not. You're just adding the, using the pedal to bring in the amp. And, you know, I have a, a jazz string quartet here at Belmont University. Uh, and I told the, the cellos, gave, gave him that trick. It's like, just bring a little, a little practice. It doesn't have to be anything big. But you'll be amazed when you use the pickup on the pits it sounds like it's an octave lower and it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of an optical oral illusion. It's a mystery how it works. Yeah. Well, I think there's partials that get amplified and yes. in this case, it's the lower partial. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious to know with your, your long history, 30 plus fun filled years with Turtle <laughs> well, Island. <laughs> I, I did kind notice of fun, mostly fun. Punching bag in the in the back of your studio there. I'm wondering if there was any correlation between that and being in a string quartet. But I am curious to know, uh, in your long career, what you are proudest of. If there is a, a tune besides besides the duo with David Ying. Yeah. Um, well. David's David Balakrishnan's um, Force of Nature piece from written for me. Yeah, I'm impressed with what he did on what I did in a sense because because yeah. it's such a hybrid piece with so many diminished legs and you know a big uh, big cello cadenza like opening, and then um, allowing me to do what I do also with with a groove with thong, sl slapping and all all that noisy. Stuff. Yep. Dum, dum.
I'm I when I think of what I'm proud of, I also with Turtle Island, I I always think about going on going to different venues and having to rush down onto that stage for a festival and get all your stuff set up. I'm, I'm thinking of Box De- Box Death Day and in um, Leipzig, Germany, and and just like having a minute it felt like to set up and go and it's yeah. on tv Whee! Yeah. yeah i can't remember if you played that or not and i i, I can see danny I mean, there and yeah. you i think you did but, but anyway um you definitely played in the hollywood bowl yeah yes i'm from la and and i used to go to the, the bowl as a kid I used to go to yeah. battle of the bands because my father was a high school French teacher and, you know, and so the band Taft High School would play. But then there were all also the L.A. Phil and, of course, the Beatles and Barbara Streisand and all sorts of stuff. Uh, I wasn't yes. at Barbara Streisand, but my parents were. I didn't get to hear the Beatles because I was... Uh, <laughs> you were a little, a little tyke at that moment. Yeah, that was, yeah, and, eight and, years old, I think. And what's his name? Open... No, Shirley Horn and the Manhattan Transfer. You're you're talking about Ray Charles at the Ray Universal Am- yes. at the Universal Amphitheater. Yes, yes, that is exactly. See, I have what a I'm very good about. memory about. I have a very good memory <laughs> about this stuff. I remember being so excited to meet Ray Charles, just a huge hero of mine, and I was waiting around, just kind of want, loitering in the hallways, pretending to have something like to keep having to go to the bathroom or get a, you know down the, in the cinder block you know hallways of the venue. Uh, waiting for Ray Charles to show up and thinking like, geez, he's supposed to be going on stage in like two minutes and and he's not here. And and then suddenly the doors at the end of the hallway opened up, like five people with with Ray Charles in the middle of them, like um, walk in, walk right past me up to the stage. And I'm thinking, okay, so I watched the show and I'm like, I'm going to just be down here for when he comes back. And the same thing happened in reverse, right out the door into the limo. I'm guessing you didn't get your <laughs> autograph. I did not. <laughs> but we, we, did, we did cover a lot of uh, territory. I'm, I'm also curious your thoughts about, I, I talk a lot of, on this show about the future of strings. You know, I, I feel like you have tried to make some changes in the way strings are played intentionally, uh, doing things that were not done before, which a lot of people probably told us we shouldn't do or we couldn't do. It isn't possible. Um, and yet we did them. And I'm curious to know where you think the future of strings is headed. Uh, and, you know, what, if you have any thoughts for young string players as to, um, you know, what that future should be or could be. Well, I, I think it, it almost goes without saying that string players are starting to feel like, I think that it's expected to be able to swing lots of different ways and play different styles of music. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, not correct about that, but I think, but I think it's becoming much more normal, much more standardized that people are going to be playing these different styles. And, you know, yeah. partially it's because of people like you that are doing, doing education in, in a big way. I, I, I'm I'm not doing that anymore. I'm I'm quasi retired. Well, you uh, have you have left a legacy of recorded documentation mm-hmm. of what you what you what you do, and which has influenced a whole generation. Uh, you know, 
It literally has taught people how to play just by watching videos and listening to those recordings. Um, you know, I, I interviewed Renata Broad a while back, and, and, you know, she said if it weren't for you, she would not be doing what she does. She's a sweetheart. Yeah. When Turtle Island taught at Stanford Jazz Workshop, I had never taught jazz. I didn't know what the hell I was doing anyway Yeah. in, in my assessment of my jazz chops at the time. And I had to coach two quartets, apparently at the same time, because I walked into this little room and I looked and there were eight people and there were two cellos and four violins and two violas. And I looked at it and I think I, I think I turned around and went out the building and Renata was one of the cellists. And I remember she was, she was all hot and bothered and tired. You know, it's, it's challenging. She hadn't, done, she hadn't done this before and she was nervous about it. And she's a great, great cellist and great person. And we worked it out. And we had people, well, you remember, because you taught there too, um, had people play Night in Tunisia after like four days. Perform. They started on a Monday and then we had yeah. a concert on Thursday night. People were crying. <laughs> they were like so freaked out. Yeah. But, you know, there was a lot of support. So there's a lot of support for string players. That's the other thing I would say. You know, I mean, pe- I, I believe musicians are quite supportive. Um, now there's people like Tierney Sutton, who who was so amazing about having Turtle Island on a recording. And I did, I did two arrangements for just cello and voice. Yeah. Um, In a trio, yeah. yeah, and we did a lot of lot of good good concerts together. We played we played the Newport Jazz Festival. Nice. I know. I always wanted to go there. Turtle yeah. Island didn't play there, but yeah. I got to play there. We had a few nice gigs, though. At least, I mean, you guys had you had thirty years of nice gigs. I only had a few, but I remember we did Montreal Jazz Festival. There is documentation. Outstanding. Of that. <laughs> we played we played there twice, and we looked at each other like. What's yeah. going on? These people you, are crazy. They're standing up that? and they're throwing beers around. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember we were, we went up there and you know we knew we had this gig and and uh, I, I don't know I, I I guess I hadn't really checked out like what stage we were on or we just got in that afternoon or whatever and it was sort of one of those things you know they like rush 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 okay go this stage is that way okay go we walk out on the stage. And all of a sudden, there was like 10,000, 12,000 people in front of us. And we were like, look at each other like, oh, my God. <laughs> How is anybody going to hear us in the back? And sure enough, they did, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There were some, some mind-blowing, mind-blowing gigs. And, and uh, it was a thrill for me. You know, that was my first, my first real gig, you know, Turtle Island. And... Was you know I mean I I was bumping around in in rock bands try, you know I couldn't get arrested uh, you know uh, so this was the first real gig that I had I didn't have any kind of road experience and all of a sudden um, you know I was palling around with you guys 
uh, and playing, you know, the Montreal Jazz Festival. So, Yeah, it built a lot of confidence for all of us, I think, to be able to go out on stage with that many people and to play well. Also, to be on television, um, one of the early things that Turtle Island did was to go on the Today Show and, oh. you know, to fly to New York and yeah. then get up like what it seemed like four hours later, was it, you know, because of the three hour time change right. and walk into the studio, the television studio. And it's like 55 degrees to keep the equipment, you know, from burning <laughs> yes. up. And then you go, Turtle Island, String Quartet, go. Try to move you know? your fingers. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and then to do well. And, you know, you did great. I did great. I can say that, you know, on the money. Yeah. Yeah. You rise and, to the occasion. Absolutely. Well, some do. <laughs> <laughs> and we usually do. We didn't always, well, but or not, not all, all of no, us always I, did. <laughs> no, I, everybody in Turtle Island did. I didn't mean it that way. I, I just meant um, that's, a, that's a particular skill yeah. to believe in yourself. Yes. And, to fo- and to focus on the music. And, and the, other, the other thing I, I realize that people don't talk enough about is, why are we up there? You know, we want to do a great job. We want to play our hearts out. You know, we want to feed our souls. But we're hopefully there for others as well as for ourselves. Yes. And, and, and one of the things when you remember that, the nerves get calmed down quite a bit. And the enjoyment comes to the fore and, and at least yes. that was my experience and uh, yeah. it's good to it's good to remember that and, and I think that's like what yo-yo is dishing out in spades you know yes. I'm here to connect with the musicians on stage if I'm if I'm playing with the orchestra I'm here to connect with the audience they yeah. came they spent a lot of money they gave a lot of time to be here and I want to I want to make them happy engaged so they'll they'll explore music in further and, and listen to more wide ranging styles, you know, listen to the Silk Road project. You know, I went and saw those guys blew me away. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mike Block. Yep. Hold it down the, the second cello part and yep. uh, wonderful music. Yeah. And it's a very good point because um, in classical music, probably more than in any other form of music like jazz or rock or whatever, because the the bar is so high technically, um, you know, it's the, the the bar is set at perfection and above, you know. Uh, that's yes, which which accounts for so much therapy. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> therapy and stage fright, you know, for a lot of young players who look at where we're talking about doing like jumping up in front of thousands of people or get uh, you know the tonight the Today Show when we're half asleep. Um, and wondering if they could ever do that. How, you know, what does it take to, to be able to do that? And, you know, you put your finger on it. You, if you think about how hard it is, uh, you will start shaking in your boots. But if you think about why you're there, what you love about it, mm-hmm. or even just the story that you're trying to tell with that particular piece of music, what is it about? What is it that you love about it? And what, why, what do you want? the audience to love about it what's the story behind it you know the connection that you feel to it you know just thinking about that uh i found breaks down that fear factor and and the idea that we need to be you know perfect uh or you know because it ain't gonna happen 
yeah, there's no such thing. And that, in fact, um, even though, you know, the standards are obviously very high, the audience is not really interested in perfection. What the audience is interested in is the human uh, personality of it and what makes it important to you. And, and you know, when Yo-Yo connects with an audience, um, you know, they, they love the fact that he loves it so much. Yes. You know, it's almost as simple as that. Uh, so, f you know, I guess, uh, long story short, for young players, you know, just focus on what you love and not what you have to do <laughs> on stage. And then close your eyes and pray to God that you <laughs> deliver the goods. And practice and then go home and practice. <laughs> and then get some therapy. No, you can tell how much fun we're having. I mean, it's it's a, a lot of joy of what was occurred on the, that stage with, with you and with other members of the quartet. Yeah, yeah. And there's something, as much as we always uh, would kid about the, you know, just the psychosis uh, of being in a, <laughs> and the neuroses of being a, in a string quartet uh, and the love-hate relationship that that is. And it seems like if you could be in a jazz string quartet or any kind of string quartet, you could just about do anything in music. There, there's almost nothing quite as challenging. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll give us that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And thanks to David Balakrishnan for making it uh, necessary. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was, a you know, before I entered the picture. So I, I take zero credit for this because that that um, ship was already in motion when I when I, when I jumped on. But the the crazy uh, confluence of what you're doing on cello, what David was doing as a composer, what Daryl was bringing to it as a groove monster. Um, exactly. With just that sense of time that he has and also that that sort of liberated non-classical sense of adventure that he that he brought to it having, you know, already been kind of a star with the Dave Grisman uh, quintet and stuff like that. To and and being some, some, in some ways, not completely self-taught, but had that aspect of his playing. He, he right. didn't go to Juilliard and study with Dorothy DeLay. Right. You know? Exactly. That's he, what I mean. He brought this non-classical kind of energy that, that it really needed to sort of ignite it. And then, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of good violists, but of course the one that I worked with was Danny Seidenberg and who you know, also just brought uh, an incredible sense of jazz and, you know. A monster of a player, yeah. you know. Yeah. Danny was terrific. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got 10 minutes left before Zoom cuts us off again here. And, uh, and, and I know have to put... I was going to say, we have to play the, the Exactly, game, right? exactly. <laughs> I mean, all of this heartfelt chit-chat is wonderful, but... I know why you really wanted to do the podcast. You got, we, you know, we <laughs> no. got to get in a, a round of not my gig. So, and I'm sure you're a, being an NPR kind of guy that you are. You're familiar with the, the game that I'm blatantly ripping off. Wait, wait! Don't tell me what you're going to do, Tracy <laughs> Silverman. Exactly. So, Mark Summer, composer of Julio, among many other hit song, hit singles. We're going to find out how much you know about Julio. Oh, wow. 
So we're going to have this a few. Is, this Julio is not looking good, buddy. This is, this is not looking good. <laughs> All right. Your first question. The song Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, which I know you know very well by Paul Simon. I want you to finish this lyric. We was all on the cover of a... Newsweek. See, I didn't even have to. But I, but I, used, to sing, I used to sing that song in Winnipeg when, <laughs> when I made the transition from Winnipeg Symphony to ultimately Turtle Island. Right. I used to play uh, me and Julio on the, on the, not on cello, on the guitar. Okay, and give were, me another and, one. And you were, you were in a band, some, uh, some kind of uh, Canadian folk group that you guys were in that was playing in San Francisco when Dave Balakrishnan heard you. Is that correct? No. Oh. Um, actually, <laughs> actually, I met I met Daryl. Um, I met Daryl at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. That's how that's how oh, I got okay. got kind of sucked into this world. Uh, okay. Um, Where you were but, discovered. Yeah. yeah. So so that this group was two guitars. Um, one of the guys, Andy Ross, was was a uh, wrote songs and and drums, um, and bass harmonica. As unlikely as that sounds. Huh. That was really cool. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Second question. <laughs> Julio Iglesias had a big hit, his first hit single, with the song To All the Girls I've Loved Before, a duet with Willie Nelson, released in 1984. My question to you is, who wrote the song? Was it A, Willie Nelson, B, Carol King, or C, Hal David. This is a tough one. Yeah, I I don't know I don't know that performance in that song. I'm gonna say. Can, wait, can you say that? Can you repeat yes. the word? The yes, lyrics? it's the song to all the girls I've loved before with a with a, a Spanish accent. Um, the were the was the writer. A, Willie Nelson, who he duetted it with, B, Carol King, or C, Hal David, better known for his lyrics with Burt Backrack. I'm going to go with Hal David. You are correct, my yes! friend. Yes. <laughs> two for two. He wrote it, co-wrote it with Albert Hammond. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. Okay. For, see if you get three out of three and ace it here. All right, now we're going to move to Don Julio Tequila. <laughs> Don Julio Gonzalez started producing tequila at the age of 17 in 1942. The age of 17. His big idea was to break with the tradition of cheap tequila and produce less quantity but a higher quality tequila. One of his innovations was to change the traditional shape of the tequila bottle. Did he make it A, shorter, B, squarer, or C, wider? Hmm. Squarer. You are correct. In fact, yes, yes. it was shorter, squarer, and wider. Oh, <laughs> It was a trick question. A, they were all would have been right. Evidently... So Evidently, the tradition was to hide your tequila bottle under the table because it was considered not, you know, something you wanted to 
to broadcast. Uh, so they were like these long bottles that you could easily grab under the table. And when you put them on the table, you couldn't see your friends. So he started making these shorter bottles so that you could, which was a higher quality that you would be proud to display on your table. Wow. There you go. A little history. You know, I, I've never had a lot of tequila, but I went to Mexico with my wife, Vivi, and we learned how to drink mezcal. Yes. Slow, well worth the effort. <laughs> slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> Man, it's so great to see you again, to chat. It's been way too long. I think the last time we hung out was in Brazil. Oh, fun? yeah. When, that's right. With Caeto uh, Marcondes. Uh, yeah, brought us down the there. Concert. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, good to see you, man. It's been way too long. We must hang out some more. Um, I will and drink mezcal. And drink some mezcal and revisit the old days and tell the, uh, all the stories that we can't tell on a podcast. That, uh, that's true. Next the, the, the soft underbelly of the seediness of <laughs> touring quartet for... <laughs> world. <laughs> Brothers, stay well, man. Thank you so much for, for doing the show. I've been waiting to get you on here forever. And uh, it's, it's just great to see you, man. Great to see you too. Keep it, keep up the good fight, Thanks. and uh, you need. We need you to have your voice on my home answering machine. <laughs> Very cool, my friend. Be well, man. You too. Great to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for listening. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on. Groove on.